Well, as we have seen in our study through Mark chapter 1, um, there really is kind of this sense of drama to the text, where virtually every story and every verse has been building up to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Oh, you remember how the chapter begins with this crazy guy named John the Baptist, and he definitely wasn't your conventional religious leader. Uh, he was wild-haired, wild-eyed, camel-skinned, locust-eating, wheatgrass-loving, kombucha-drinking hippie, that, that his church was the Jordan River, right? And he's inviting people out to repent. He's inviting people to come and to follow Jesus. And, and Jesus himself comes to John the Baptist, and he's baptized by him in the Jordan River. And we've seen how it was this epic Trinitarian moment, as you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit in this singular story. The, the Son is being baptized beneath the Jordan waters. And as he's being baptized, the Father speaks from heaven, and he says, you are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. And then the Spirit comes down upon him like a dove to anoint him and empower him and to send him out into ministry. But it's interesting, right after that story, no sooner does Jesus get out of the water, I mean, his clothes are still dripping wet, when it says that the Spirit of God sends him into the wilderness where he has this inaugural conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light as Satan is tempting him and throwing everything that he can at Jesus in attempt to make him fall. But you know from that story that Jesus pushes back against the enemy. He quotes scripture. He's in prayer. He's filled with the spirit of God. And so each time the enemy comes, Jesus pushes him back. And so he comes out of the wilderness victorious, ready to take on this new chapter of ministry. And then we saw last week how his ministry begins with this message that the kingdom of God has come near, and we need to align ourselves and our hearts and our lives with what God is doing in the world. Well, that story continues in our text tonight as Jesus' very first act in his ministry is to choose some disciples who would follow after him and learn from him and then be sent out to change the world. And so the story begins, check it out, verse 16 of Mark chapter 1. It says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And so the story begins, says that Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. And geographically, um, this area was also known as the Triangle. And it was called the Triangle because there were three cities that were there. First of all, Bethsaida, which was home to around six or 700 people. Um, five of Jesus' 12 disciples were from Bethsaida. And then you had Chorazin, which was a mile or two to the northwest. Uh, six or 700 people lived there. And then you had Capernaum, which was in the south. And this really became Jesus' base of operations. And so Mark reveals that the very first place Jesus goes to find men who would change the world, 
who would influence culture, who would start churches eventually, he goes of all places to Galilee, to the triangle. Now, if I were Jesus, this probably isn't the place that I would be looking. Um, the reason why is because historically, it didn't really have the best reputation. Uh, it was known as being kind of backwards, sort of a hick town, kind of redneck, if you would. Um, just the place you wouldn't necessarily want to go visit on your own. I don't know, like parts of Eastern Oregon, like Drain or whatever. It's like, is that really where you would go to, to find people who are going to shape and change the world. If, if I were Jesus, I probably would go to a city called Sephoris. Now, Sephoris was just five miles away to the east, and it was really a very, very influential city. It was a Roman military hub, which meant that it was very well organized, very well planned and designed. It was the cultural epicenter for the whole area. Um, there was a theater, a university, a gymnasium. There were temples. I mean, Sephoris was definitely the place to go, and it was definitely the hot spot if you wanted to find people who at least had the potential to impact the world. So, so that's where I would go, but it's interesting, that's not where Jesus goes. Instead, he, he walks along the sea in this triangle area, what was a very average and ordinary place, and he finds average ordinary men who would carry out his mission in the world. In fact, our text tells us tonight that these men were, were fishermen, which was a very, very common job. Uh, this was something very, very, you would see it all over the place, especially around Galilee, which was known for its fishing. In fact, Josephus tells us that there were 330 boats on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. In addition to that, you had over a dozen ports all around the sea, and each one of these ports were named after the industry. And so you had Bethsaida, which was the house of fish, or Magdala, which was the fish tower, and on it went. So this was the place where every day hundreds of fishermen would cast out their nets, they'd catch the fish, and the fish then would be sent throughout the Roman Empire. So this was the world that Peter and Andrew lived in. It was a common, ordinary job that in no way would have set them apart to follow a rabbi. In fact, as we'll see, following a rabbi was probably the last thing on their minds. I mean, their course, their trajectory of their entire life was set. They saw themselves as fishermen and they would die as fishermen. So imagine their surprise when Jesus comes to them, check it out, verse 17, out of the blue, he comes up to them and says, come and follow me, and I will make you or send you to fish for people. So here's the scene. These two brothers are standing by the lake. They're casting their nets into the sea, and a, a stranger walks up to them with these words, Come and follow me. Literally, that phrase, come follow me, is come and be my disciple. And the word disciple in, in the original language in, in Hebrew for their culture was the word talmid. And it literally means a learner, 
a student, and it's very, very close to the word apprentice. So Jesus is saying to these guys, come and learn from me. Be my disciple. Study under me. And if you do this, I will send you out to fish for people. Or if you have the King James Version, it says, I will send you out or make you into fishers of men. And that phrase, fishers of men, is really, really interesting. It was actually used um, in the first century to describe teachers who were exceptionally gifted at their trade. Let's say there is an orator, a public speaker that thousands of people love to come and listen. The way that he spoke, the way that he crafted and articulated his words, well, it had a way of capturing your heart and your soul and your imagination. It would hook into your mind. And so if you knew a good teacher back then, you would say, oh, he or she, man, they are fishers of men. They have an ability to capture the attention of crowds. So that's the term that Jesus uses here. He says, come and follow after me, and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, I will make you into great teachers. I will give you the ability to do what I am doing. Well, no sooner did they hear these words from Jesus Well, verse 18 tells us at once that that phrase means immediately, without delay, they left their nets and followed him. So right then, right there, they drop everything. They leave their nets, their occupation, their friends, everything that they were familiar with, they left it behind to follow this carpenter turned rabbi from Nazareth, all because he had given them the invitation, hey, come and follow me. Well, the story continues, verse 19. It says, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. So now Jesus, he goes further up the beach, and this time he comes across two other men, James and John. And it says here that they were preparing their nets, which means they're cleaning them, repairing them, uh, they're unfolding them, they're getting ready for a good day's work. And as they're doing this, again, Jesus comes up to them, and he says, come and be my disciple. And it says that these two guys, just like the guys before, they drop everything, and it says immediately they left, and it says they left their father in the boat. Now this was actually a really big deal, because in the ancient world, businesses were handed down from father to son. In many cases, for hundreds and hundreds of generations. And it was kind of expected of you as a son that you would carry on the father's trade. So if your father was a mechanic, you become a mechanic. If your father was a barista, you become a barista. You did what your father became. And it was also expected of you culturally that you would take care of the family business. And we know from history that this business was probably very, very lucrative. In fact, scholars point out from the text, it says here that there were hired men in the boat. 
This wasn't a common thing. Only those companies that were doing exceptionally well would have the cash flow to hire other men. And so this was a company, you know, Zebedee and Sons Incorporated. They've got their fish tacos on the side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, They're thinking of expanding into Jerusalem. It's doing very, very well. And yet they drop all that. They drop their future. They, they say goodbye to their father. They leave their family. They, they leave behind cultural expectations all because a stranger comes up to them out of the blue, totally unexpected, and says, hey, guys, come be my disciple. Come follow after me. Now, this, of course, raises a ton of questions for me. And I think at the very top of the list, the question is, why would someone do that. I mean, would you leave everything if a complete stranger came up to you and gave you this kind of invitation? Let's say you're at the work site and uh, you're busy building a house or something and this guy just walks onto the job site totally uninvited and says, hey, you, follow after me and I'll turn you into constructors of people or something. I mean, would you just drop everything? Okay, take off your tool belt, take off your hard hat and and leave? Or or let's say you're at PSU and um, mid-lecture and a guy walks into the classroom totally unannounced and he looks at you and he says, hey, follow after me and I'll teach you a whole bunch more than what they're teaching you here at PSU. I mean, would you just say, sure, yeah, no worries, I'll do that. And you leave behind your laptop and your notebook. I mean, would you walk out the door? I think for most of us, we wouldn't. So what on earth is happening in this story? You you get this sense of, wow, these guys are willing to jump into the unknown. They're willing to say goodbye to everything just because of an invitation. Why would they do that? Well, to answer that question, I think what we have to do is go back into first century Jewish education. And as we begin to unpack that, I think it'll hopefully shed some light on what's going on in this story. And if you're a note taker, you may want to grab a pen, a piece of paper. Um, But in Jesus' day, there were three levels of education. The first level of education is what was known as the Beit Safir, or House of the Book. And House of the Book was basically an elementary school, although it went all the way up to the age of 12. Um, It it took place in a local synagogue, usually taught by a rabbi. And your textbook was the Torah. Now, the Torah, as you know, is the first five books of the Old Testament. And so what they had to do for their homework is they would memorize most, if not all, of the Torah. So we're talking young children who are memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was their task. And for most of these kids, again, their education would end right around the age of 12. You'd finish the Beit Safir, and and most would go back home. If you were male, uh, you would learn the family trade. You would do what your father did. He would take you on as an intern in the process of giving you his company. If you were a female, you would usually get married right around the age of 13 or 14. So that's kind of the way the culture worked. However, there was one exception. 
If you showed exceptional intellectual promise, let's say you're just a genius, you memorized the Torah without any difficulty whatsoever, and the teachers really saw the spark of learning in you, then what would happen is you would move on to the next level, what was called the Beit Midrash, the Beit Midrash, or the house of study. Now, this took place from ages 12 to 14, and what you do, did at this school is you, you would go through everything else, starting with the Torah, but going all the way through, through the prophets and through the poets, and your task, your homework, was to memorize the entire Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, completely memorized. You know, it's interesting, I was reading a book Recently, a sociologist was saying how we live in a culture where we've kind of dumbed down the ability of of our brain, that we have this amazing cognitive talent that is many ways, it's untapped. We're not using it. And we have the ability to memorize large amounts of text that our brain is capable of so much more than we give it credit for, but they were saying in this book that we've actually kind of dumbed it down through modern technology. You know, so all of us, mostly, we have smartphones, which has kind of become an extension of our memory. So we don't bother, really, to memorize things the old school way because, well, I'll just Google it or whatever. But in the old days, man, you had to commit it to memory, and they understood that God's word was more precious to them than anything else, and so the entire Old Testament would be memorized in the Beit Midrash. Now again, most were done at the age of 14. You would then go back home, learn the family trade, get married or whatever. However, for the top 1%, for the summa cum laude, for those who were better than everyone else intellectually, those people would be singled out for the third level, which was called the Talmud or discipleship. And what happened here is that it was your task to go find one of the rabbis. And again, in first century Israel, there were several rabbis in this Galilee region. You would go find out a rabbi and you basically beg him, can I be your Talmud? Can I be your student? And in most cases, the rabbi would simply say, no, not interested. However, if he felt that you had the work ethic, the acumen, if he he thought you had the ability to be his follower, he would bring you in for an interview. And he'd basically drill you, in, in some cases for weeks. He'd ask you questions about what you think of the Old Testament text and have you memorized this section? What do you think of Rabbi so-and-so's take on the Nephilim or whatever? And he'd ask you all of these obscure questions that you were expected to know. Um, it was Gary Brashear's, um heard from him just yesterday, in fact, and he was saying that getting into a rabbinic school was kind of equivalent of getting into like a a Harvard or a Yale or perhaps even tougher than that. He said it was so, so difficult that only the tiniest percentage were allowed to get in and only that was through this intensive grilling process. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the hot seat and kind of grilled, maybe interviewed for a job or school or whatever. Um, When I was studying this, I was thinking, about um, 13 years ago when I asked my wife's uh, dad if, if I could have Elisa as my wife. And uh, we were 
wanting to get engaged at that point, and I wanted to do it kind of the traditional way, and so I got a hold of him and said, hey, can we meet? And he kind of saw it coming. And so I was kind of expecting in my mind that he'd say, oh, sure, no problem. But instead he's like, okay, um, let's, let's meet next week at, at this restaurant. And so we go to the restaurant, we sit down, and he just starts asking me question after question after question, kind of took me back, you know, and he's a great guy, amazing guy. But he's asking me all these questions and and so when we're all done, I'm thinking, okay, did I pass? You know, is, it, is, all, is it all good? And his answer was, well, uh, I'll think about it. And uh, I'll, I'll get a hold of you. My people will call your people type of thing. I'm like dying inside. And so I don't know how long went by, maybe a week or two. felt like a year. And I'm just wondering, what is he going to say? Does he like me? Is this going to work? And so he calls me back up and says, you know what, Let, let's meet again. And so we go back to the same restaurant. We sit down, same exact thing. He's asking me question after question after question. I'm trying my best to answer. And after the end of a couple of hours, he's like, okay, I'll think about it. I'll, call, I'll get a hold of you. <laughs> and, so, and so another couple of weeks goes by. He calls me up again. Okay, let's meet again. We meet the third time. True story. He actually has multiple choice questions for me. Questions like, okay, in this kind of scenario, what would Elisa prefer? Would it A, B, A, this, B, C, or D? And so he's asking me these things, and I must have passed the test uh, because at the end of that, he's like, I'll get a hold of you. And a couple days later, he's like, yes, you have my blessing. Now, at the time, I'm thinking that is like really hardcore, right? The only thing that was missing was the shotgun against the wall. But now that I have a daughter... I'm thinking, okay, like seven meetings would probably be good or something, and the shotgun, right? But it's this kind of intensive, grilling process that these guys had to go through. And so if you pass the test, which again was very, very rare, but if you passed, this is what the rabbi would say, follow me. And with those two words, you now became a Talmud. Now, if you were a Talmud, you had three goals. Again, if you're taking notes, you may wish to jot these three things down. The three goals of a Talmud. Number one, your first goal was to learn your rabbi's yoke. When I say yoke, I'm not talking eggs or working out at the gym. Um, a rabbi's yoke was his teaching. Uh, it was what they referred to as a set of doctrine. It was his theology, his interpretation of Torah. And so your goal was to pick his brain. You wanted to know what he knew. You would immerse yourself in his thinking. He would teach you from the text. He would teach you from other rabbis. And the whole time you're hanging on every word. You're soaking up every single thing that he says. You want to get inside his brain and understand completely what made this man tick. The second goal of the Talmud was you wanted to become like your rabbi. You see, it wasn't enough just to know his mind. You wanted to know his character and his personality. And so for that, you would live with your rabbi 24 hours a day. Now, that's intense. You would do what the rabbi did. You would follow him around like a puppy in the house. You would travel with him from synagogue to synagogue. You'd eat with him, travel with him. You'd shadow his every move. You would imitate his style, his vocal inflections, his tone. In fact, one Jewish sage said, the goal of every Talmud is to be covered in the dust of their rabbi. 
which meant, well, you know how in the first century AD, most roads were dusty, right? Especially around Galilee. And so to be covered in his dust meant you were so close to your rabbi that as he's walking, he's kicking up dust. And that dust now is getting on you because you're so close to him. So if at the end of the day, you look at yourself, you're like, I'm completely dirty and muddy. It was like, thumbs up. That was a good day. You're covered in the dust of your rabbi. So you wanted to be just like him. You wanted to learn his character. You wanted to get inside his mind and you wanted to become like him in every way possible. That's why, by the way, um, that story of Peter, when Peter was in the boat, remember, and Jesus comes to him walking on water. What does Peter say? He's like, let me come and walk to you on the water. Why? Because if his rabbi was going to walk on water, well, the Talmud would walk on water too, even if it meant that he would drown. So it was that kind of devotion that they would have for their rabbi. Thirdly and finally, your goal was to carry on the rabbi's work. So it wasn't just about learning and getting a degree that was part of it. The end game of the rabbinic process was to someday be sent out by your rabbi. And there would be this commissioning service where essentially the rabbi would say to you, okay, you have what it takes you've learned, you've done well, now go out and make disciples. So this was the process and this was the world in which these four Jewish men lived. And again, this whole process of education was reserved for who? The best of the best, the sharpest, the brightest, those with the most potential. And yet in our text, we read that James and John, were they the best of the best? Did they make the cut to get into these schools that we talked about? Well, the answer is no. What are they doing? They're fishing. They're learning the family trade, which tells us that culture, society had said, look, you don't have what it takes. You haven't made the cut. You're not good enough to be in our schools. And yet it's to these men the outcasts, those rejected by the system that Jesus finds and says, follow me, which again was unheard of because a rabbi would never go looking for students. Students would come to the rabbi, but Jesus finds them. Jesus invites them and says, come and follow me. No wonder they left everything to follow this rabbi from Nazareth. You see, where everyone else looked at the outward appearance, Jesus saw their heart. Where everyone else looked at them and said, ah, they're just fishermen, no big deal. Jesus looked at them and said, no, they're fishers of men. He saw their potential, their possibilities. He saw things in them that no one else could see. Jesus believed in them and was willing to take a risk for them. Man, what a difference it makes when someone takes a risk on you. And I think most, if not all of us, have had those times in our life where people have given us a chance and an opportunity, and maybe we didn't deserve that chance, or maybe we were underqualified. It's happened several times in my life, but remember one, especially um, when I was 21 years old, I was working for a church in uh, Southern Oregon, 
and they had this coffee shop called, ironically, Solid Rock that I worked at. I just can't get away from the name, I guess. And so I worked for this uh, coffee shop, uh, going to school at the same time, and uh, it was this big church, and so it was really rare for me to have any kind of conversation with the pastors, like 7,000 people or something. And uh, one day, just out of the blue, I'm walking in the parking lot of this church, and the pastor comes by in his Volkswagen bug, and he unwinds the window. Hey, Dominic, how's it going? Oh, good. And he says, so um, I'm on my way to an elders meeting right now, and I'm wondering if you would mind uh, going to this country called Vanuatu to teach the Bible for about, ah, three years or so. What do you think? And I'm like, well, you know, I... I, I, yeah, I'll pray about it. And he's like, no, I, I need to know right now. I'm on my way to the elders meeting. I need to give them an answer, yes or no. <laughs> so I had to decide right then, at that moment, am I going to drop my nets and say yes or say, no, you're crazy? I said yes. And then I go up the stairs, back up to the solid rock coffee. What on earth did I just say, right? And so I, I, I get out of there, and the first thing I do is I go to Walmart, and I pick up this map, and I take it home, and I put it on the wall, and I'm like, okay, where is this country that I'm going to, right? I thought it was in Africa. Turns out, after 45 minutes of looking for this country, um, it was this tiny island in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific. And then I started doing some research on it. Last reported case of cannibalism in the world. I'm thinking, no big deal, just give them the cold shoulder, which is a terrible cannibal joke. <laughs> That's about as good as it's going to get tonight. <laughs> and then I find out that they have all kinds of weird uh, diseases there, malaria and other things. And then uh, they find out about this language that they speak called Bislama, which is like a cross between Tarzan meets caveman meets pig Latin, right? It's really weird language. I'm like, well, what? I'm going there. And so three days later, I'm on a plane heading to Vanuatu. Three days and my life was radically changed. It was like the hardest experience of my life, but by far one of the best experiences of my life. And here's the deal with that. I wasn't ready at all. I didn't know about the culture, the language. I wasn't prepared to go teach the Bible every day. And yet here was a guy who came up to me, who knows why, and said, hey, follow me, so to speak. Go to Vanuatu, are you willing? And I dropped my nets. Man, what a difference it makes when someone gives you a chance. And maybe you're here tonight and you, you think, well, no one's ever given me that kind of chance. Maybe you've been one that's kind of been rejected or pushed aside or have people say, look, you'll never have what it takes. Listen, our God believes in us. Our God is willing to take a risk with us. I mean, this blows me away that our God would call us and use us at all. I mean, he could do a much better job of reaching this world than we could. He could just send a few angels who could go and share the message. He could roll back the clouds. Hey, world, I'm here, you know. But instead, he chooses men and women like us who are ill-equipped and unprepared, ordinary men, ordinary women from an ordinary place, and he says, come and follow me. I love that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. That's our story, amen? That, that's us. And yet God says, I chose you. And listen, that's just not our story. That's also the story of the entire scriptures, right? Genesis to Revelation, it's about God choosing people who weren't prepared, whether it was a David who was just a shepherd boy, and God chose him to take down a Goliath. Or you have the story of Gideon, who when the enemy attacked, Gideon was hiding in the wine presses from the enemy. Everyone else, all the other men, are out fighting, and he's hiding in the wine press. And this angel shows up and says, greetings, mighty man of courage. Now, that had to be said sarcastically, right? <laughs> and Gideon's right looking around like, huh? Who is he talking to? And God chose that man to take on an army that was hundreds of times bigger than Israel. Or you think of a Jeremiah who was just a teenager. And God said, look, don't, don't use that as an excuse. I'm going to use you as a prophet to the nations, on and on it goes in our story. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uneducated, average Joe kinds of guys, and Jesus says to them, come, be my disciple. And brothers and sisters, that is the word of the Lord for us tonight. He says the same thing 2,000 years later. His invitation has not changed. Come and be my disciple. A few chapters later in Mark 8, he says, whoever wants to follow after me. And I love that word, whoever. He doesn't say, well, if you're rich and you want to follow after me, or if you're really educated and you want to follow after me. No, he says, whoever, wherever you're at, come be my disciple. We are called to be followers of Jesus Christ tonight. Now, what does that mean for us? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, again, I want to go back to those three things that it meant for them. For them, discipleship was to learn our ra their rabbi's yoke. Well, that's what we're called to do, right? We're here to learn the teachings of Jesus, to get inside his mind, so to speak, to study, think, and probe, to love him with all our mind, to flood our imagination with his vision of the kingdom, to saturate our thought life in his teaching, to immerse ourselves in his story. Secondly, to be a follower, a, a, a Talmud of Jesus means that we want to become like Jesus. We follow him around. We study his every move. We learn to think like Jesus, talk like Jesus, love like Jesus, forgive like Jesus, pray like Jesus, share like Jesus, live like Jesus. Dallas Willard, he said, a disciple is anyone whose ultimate goal is to live as Jesus would live if he were in their place. That's what it means to be a Talmud. That's what it means for us tonight. And finally, thirdly, to carry on our rabbi's work. You see, to follow Jesus isn't just about coming to church, as you know, and studying scriptures and singing a few songs. No, we are sent out by our rabbi to fish for people. <laughs> And that word send that Jesus uses, it was translated years later in the Latin 
as missio. It's where we get our word for mission. That's why we talk about being sent out on mission by Jesus. That there in Matthew 28, Jesus got his disciples together before ascending into heaven, and he said, now go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That was the goal of these men. And brothers and sisters, that is what the Lord is calling us to tonight. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so the simple question that I want to close with tonight before we go is this. Is there anything in our life right now that is hindering us or keeping us from being that follower of Jesus. He's come to us at this sea of Galilee, so to speak. And he says, follow me, be my disciple. And when Jesus said those words to those four men, there were things that they had to let go of, right? A career, they had to let go of the nets, they had to let go of what society expected of them. There were things that they had to drop. There was a price they had to pay in order to be a follower of Christ. What about us tonight? Is there anything in our life that right now is keeping us, holding us back from radical pursuit of Jesus? Maybe for some it's, it's idolatry, just putting other things ahead of the Lord. It could be a relationship, it could be a business, a career, it could be some sin or addiction or whatever. Jesus calls us to let that net go tonight. For some, it might be pride or, or perhaps lust, or maybe it's the net of the internet, right? I know for so many, that is such a huge issue. And Jesus calls us tonight, hey, be my disciple, follow me, let that net go. Or for many of us, it's just those feelings of insecurity. It's that feeling of, man, I am way over my head. There's no way I can pull this off alone. I know I feel that way when it comes to planting a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's that sense of, oh my goodness, Lord, we need your strength, we need your wisdom, we need your ability because we can't do this on our own. But listen, where we're weak is where he's strong. And whatever it is that is holding us back tonight, Jesus is worth it. There is nothing like following our rabbi. And it's not easy, right? And it's one of the hardest things to do. Following Jesus is the pathway towards the cross. There's going to be pain and difficulty. It's going to be hard at times. But it is the best thing that you could ever do. One author put it this way. He said, we face a humanity that's too precious to neglect. We have a Christ too glorious to hide, and we have an adventure that is too thrilling to miss. Jesus is calling us tonight on that adventure. He's calling us to follow him. The question is, will we drop our nets and will we say yes? Will we become the Talmud of our rabbi, Jesus Christ? Let's pray, shall we? And Father, I thank you so much that you would come to people like us with the same words 
and that you would invite us to come and follow you. God, I'm just amazed that, that you would love us in that way. Because like these fishermen, we're just average, ordinary people. And yet for some reason, God, you've come into our life. You've told us that there's so much more than just the temporal, the fleeting things that we live for. You call us to be kingdom-minded. You call us to be the kinds of people who are living for something worthwhile. And to follow after you, Jesus, it's the best thing we'll ever do. It's the hardest thing we'll ever do. But I know that the whole way, every step, you're with us. You're by our side. And so, Father, tonight, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this place. And I know that this story can intersect in our lives in so many different ways. But I pray for any here tonight who have been sensing that call, that you've been saying to them, come and follow me. You, you've been calling them, Lord, to, to surrender their all, to let go of the nets, to step into the unknown. And maybe they're at that point where they're just unsure. They haven't yet taken that step of faith. And God, you're calling them to it. I pray that even tonight, here and now, that they would drop those nets and follow after you. And so I pray, Father, that if there are any here in that place, that right now, by the power of your spirit, you begin to work and move in their lives and hearts. And right now, with your heads bowed, if there's any here tonight and you would say, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I know that God's calling me to drop my nets, whatever that net may be for you. You know that he's calling you into a new chapter and a new season. And you know that it's time and you'd like some prayer that God would give you the strength to do what you need to do. And if that's you tonight, I just want to pray with you, for you, to just ask God's spirit to empower you. So if you would just slip up your hand right where you're seated. And I, and I want to pray together. All right, quite a few hands. If you would just raise them high. Father, I pray for every hand that's lifted tonight. For my brothers and sisters who are acknowledging just their, that they've heard your voice, that you've spoken clearly, that you've said, come and follow me. And they're in that place, God, where they need to drop the nets. I pray that even now, through the power of your spirit, that whatever is holding them back would be broken and loosened, and God, that you would give them the strength to leave all and follow after you. God, may they run the race that you've set before them with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith, laying aside every sin anything that entangles them, that they can do what you've called them to do. So even now, God, would you give them just this supernatural empowering and filling that tonight they could become your disciples. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We love you, Lord. And God's people said, amen, amen.